for that kind introduction. It's a joy for me to be with you and to have this time. We've been looking forward to this week, and uh, I'm very honored to be able to stand here this morning to open the Word of God to you here at Heritage Baptist Church. We're also very thankful for the vision that God has given this congregation for church-based pastoral training, and uh, it's exciting to see God bringing a team of men together and uh, it's been such a great joy, and the church that I serve in Pennsylvania is supportive of this effort and thankful and honored to be in association and fellowship with this effort uh, to see godly men raised up to gospel ministry. Well, I want to turn your attention this morning to Psalm 16, <clears throat> and I'm going to read this psalm to you. It's a familiar psalm, and we will look particularly at the last verse of the psalm. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints that are in the land, they are the glorious ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take their names upon my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Let's pray together. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and in our presence this morning in and do things that we cannot do for ourselves. We ask, Father, that you would take the words from this psalm and that you would lift them up from the page and that you would plant them in our hearts and that we would be people who are in full pursuit of God and these everlasting pleasures that are found at His right hand. And Lord, in praying that, we pray that you would obscure all the other things that compete for our attention and our loyalty and our love, and that we would be a people who are delighted in and fascinated and mesmerized by God. Work these things within us, we pray, for your glory, that your name may be known throughout the whole earth. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> I received a letter recently from a friend who is, uh, had become a leader in a Christian ministry, and in the course of mentioning the trials that they were going through within that ministry, he said something that I'm sure I have said in many times in the past, but it bothered me a little bit as I read it this time. He said, remember, God is not concerned with your happiness, He's concerned with your holiness. And the reason I felt a little put off by that is that it seemed to juxtapose holiness and happiness. Now, in a way, I understand that. If we think of passages like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, 
speaks of Moses choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. In that sense, then God is concerned with our more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. But I found myself thinking about Psalm 16 as I read this little section from this letter from my friend. And the fact that at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The greatest pleasures, the only lasting true pleasures that human beings can experience are found at the right hand of God. And so we could say that since God is concerned with our happiness, He is also concerned with our holiness. That holiness is the only sure route to happiness. And it certainly is true that all people crave happiness. Little children, school-aged children, teens, young married, older people, even retired people are striving for happiness. It's as, it's as natural as breathing. Everything people do is done to make them happy. Even suicide is, is an attempt to find happiness because the person concludes, I would be better off dead. And so it's, in that sense, it's an inverted sort of pursuit of happiness. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon at age 18 on Christian happiness. I want to just read a little quote from that sermon. He says, They are certainly the wisest men who do the most to make for their happiness. And this is, in effect, acknowledged by all the men of the world, for there is no man on earth who is not earnestly seeking after happiness. They will ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. Some will wander all over the face of the earth to find it. They will seek it in the waters and on the dry land, under the waters and in the bowels of the earth. They will spend and be spent, labor all their lifetime, endanger their lives, will pass over mountains and valleys, will go through fire and water, seeking for happiness amongst vanities. Although the true way of happiness is right before them, and they might easily step into it and walk in it, and be brought into as great a happiness as they can conceive of, yet they will not enter into it. Sometimes people, Christian people, are almost ashamed of their passion for happiness. We have the idea that something that we force ourselves to do has greater nobility and greater worth than something that we desire to do. And many people conceive of, of, of Christians as a person who is denying himself pleasure in order to be good and to please God. And it's as though, the, the idea is almost as though the, the whole world and disobedience to God offers real pleasure, but we can't have those pleasures because we're Christians. And the reality is that the greatest pleasure that anyone can experience is found in knowing God. The most profound pleasures that human beings can know are found at the right hand of God. That's what our text tells us. At His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's what the psalm is telling us. We, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The pursuit of pleasure is the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God is a pursuit of pleasure. And one of the chief ways that Christians can glorify God is by enjoying God and delighting in God. It's by finding God to be worthy and, and the chief delight of our souls. When you and I seek enjoyment 
and pleasure and happiness that God alone can provide for us, we are glorifying God. And we are making His name great. And if I had some weeks to spend with you, I would argue even further that seeking pleasure in God and delighting in God and enjoying God and finding fulfillment in God is one of the means of victory over sin. Now, you will never, never treasure God and fellowship and communion with God unless you find pleasure in Him. Unless you train yourself to be one who delights in Him and finds joy in Him. John Piper's ministry, Desiring God Ministries, has a little phrase they use, pleasure is the measure of our treasure. It's a very profound little phrase. Because how do you measure the value of something in your life? You measure its value by how much pleasure it gives you. And the, the, the intensity of your delight in something is the index of its value to you. The intensity of your delight in something, the superlatives that you use to describe, describe it, the, the ways that you are thrilled and enthralled by whatever you delight in expresses how much you value it. We could put it this way. The, the intensity of your satisfaction in your treasured things is a measure of their glory to you. It's a measure of their worth or their value to you. And as you think about God, the treasure of His most glorious being is the most glorified when we find pleasure in Him. When the maximal, optimal pleasure that we experience in life is found in God, is found in contemplation of God, in delight of God, in fellowship with God, God is glorified. Now, in 1992, I had the opportunity to go to Africa for six weeks, and I was there for six weeks. I still have a picture on my desk at home of my wife, Margie, greeting me when we returned to the Wilkes-Barre Airport at the end of six weeks, when I returned. It just happened that there were some friends of ours in the airport that very day. They were traveling, and they caught a picture of Margie running and leaping into my arms and embracing me as, as I got off the plane. Now, the, the fact that she treasures me meant that she found great pleasure in my return. The fact that I had arrived home safely and that we would be together once again was something that caused her heart great joy, and so she came running and leaping into my arms. Now, how do you suppose that I responded by her welcome? I was delighted. I was thrilled. I was honored. I was honored in the fact that my presence with her was treasured so much that it gave her great pleasure that I was back again. And I was honored, I was flattered to be the object of her heart's desire. And we embraced and we still have that moment frozen in time because friends were there to capture the photo. Now, can you imagine me rebuking her? Can you imagine me saying to you, to her, here you are, so delighted to see me, finding pleasure in the fact that I'm home again. You are so selfish. It's all about you, isn't it? All you ever think of is yourself. Now, you can't imagine me responding in that way, can you? 
You see, her delight in my presence honored me. She was telling me by leaping into my arms that I was more important to her than anything else. And when you come to your Heavenly Father in that way, when you come to your Heavenly Father and you leap into His arms, when His embrace is the only embrace that you need, is the only embrace that you long for, when His embrace is the embrace that really matters, when His embrace is what provides real comfort for you, He is honored. When we come to Him and we find His glorious being to be beautiful beyond words, He is glorified. When the beauty of His being is all the beauty that you need, when all else that is beautiful makes you think of His even greater beauty, when all else that is beautiful increases your sense of delight and joy in Him and His beauty, He is honored and He is glorified. When you come to Him for forgiveness and, and quit trying to piece together your own little scraps of righteousness, when you come to Him and being accepted and the beloved is your heart's joy and leaves you full of awe and wonder and delight, He is magnified. When the wonder of His grace and peace from God fills your heart with awe and worship and praise, He is extolled. When private worship of your Master is where you go for joy, when private worship of your Master is where you go when you feel out of sorts or ill at ease, when the pursuit of God is where you go for joy, when that's what brings you happiness, He is magnified and He is glorified. When being mesmerized and enthralled by Him makes you turn away from the fraudulent offers of pleasure that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil, He is glorified. Let's go back to my illustration for a moment. Think about my wife running toward my open arms. What do you suppose was her motivation? Does she run to me out of a sense of duty? Is she watching disembarking passengers and waiting for me to appear at the, at the gate and thinking, okay, here comes mine. I guess this one's my responsibility. I guess I should run to make the right effect. Honey, I'm so flattered. When you came running toward me, I felt so loved. Well, somebody had to do it. <laughs> it's kind of my responsibility, isn't it? I mean, you're my husband. What would our friends think if they didn't see me running towards you? I thought it was my duty. Dutiful running towards your husband is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? If she doesn't feel a spontaneous affection for me that moves her to run toward me. I'm not honored by it. It's her joy in it. It's the fact that it is a delight for her. It's the fact that she's not calculating. She's not simply mustering up some sense of marital duty. It's her joy and delight in it that makes it something that honors me. And in relationship to God, brothers and sisters, duty without delight dishonors God. 
Now, do we have a duty to seek God? We certainly do. We're responsible to obey God and to do His will. But if our motivation is only duty and not the delight that is both the fruit and the reward of that duty, then God is not honored. As we look at several passages, I hope it will be very clear to you that by enjoying God, by enjoying all that He is for us, by enjoying the blessings of His provision and wondering at His being, we glorify His supremacy, we glorify His sovereignty, we glorify His goodness and His grace and His power. And by glorifying Him and enjoying Him, we find the delight and the pleasure that we crave and desire as human beings. God is honored by our pursuit of pleasure in God. Notice what our passage says. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now this verse is not simply a recitation of fact. It's not a mere syllogism. But the verse is also an incentive to seek God. It's in God's presence that our joy can be full. Fullness of joy can be found nowhere else. Getting high, getting rich, getting sex, getting love, getting success can't do it. Only God can fulfill our craving for joy. And really, if you think of this passage, what God is telling us in this passage is that the fullness of joy... Joy that transcends all other joys. Joys that will dazzle and enthrall you not only for this life, but for eternity are found at the right hand of God. He has the power to thrill you and satisfy you and fill you and fulfill you forever and ever and ever without ever going flat or ever becoming empty. Spiritual joy, spiritual delight, spiritual ecstasy are found at the right hand of God and nowhere else. And when we come to Him and seek Him with our whole heart, He has promised in passages like Isaiah or Jeremiah chapter 29 that if we seek Him, we will find Him. He will be found by those who seek Him and pursue Him. Now, human beings, you and me, we are hardwired for, for pleasure and delight. We're spring-loaded for pleasure, pleasure and delight. And because God has made us for Himself and has made us to be satisfied in Him, He has built into us an insatiable delight for pleasure, an insatiable hunger for satisfaction, a desire to be filled with wonder and joy, to be intrigued and fascinated and accelerated and mesmerized, to be riveted and transfixed. God has built those things into us because He has made us for Himself. These desires are so strong within you that they never relent. You never stop pursuing them. They take no time off. You can't shut down your desire for joy and pleasure. And God has made us like this because He's made us for Himself. He has designed you and me for pleasure. He has built in within us this ravenous desire for delight. 
It's not wicked for you to desire to fulfill that which God has put within you. Now, you can try to fulfill it in ways that are wrong. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is written about that. But the desire for pleasure and fulfillment is not wrong. God has made you that way. God's design for you is that that ravenous hunger you have for joy and pleasure and delight is designed to be fulfilled in Him. And that's the only place that it can be fulfilled. In His presence. In His presence alone, there's fullness of joy and life forevermore. As Piper says, the bottom line of happiness is that we are granted to see the infinite beauty of God and make much of Him forever. Christianity does not tell us to turn away from pleasure. Buddhism tells us that. One of the four noble truths of Buddhism is that the cause of suffering is desire. Therefore, the way that you end suffering is by snuffing out desire. Reduce your longings and your sadness will go away because you won't desire anymore and therefore you won't be disappointed. But that's not Christian teaching. That's Buddhism. Christianity says God has made you with passions and desires. The problem is not that you desire. The problem is that the enemy of our souls tries to tell us and we believe that those longings can be fulfilled in something other than God. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape's Letters, uh, the demon, of course, if you know that little book, the demon is writing, the chief demon is writing to other demons to tell them how to seduce mankind and turn them away from God. There's this little quote there. The demon, now he's writing to the other demons, never forget that when we deal with any pleasure in its healthy, normal, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now, he's speaking of God as the enemy. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasure, and all of our research so far has not enabled us to produce a single one. All we can do is encourage human beings to take the pleasures our enemy, he's speaking of God there, our enemy has produced at times or ways or degrees that he has forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. To get man's soul and give him nothing in return. That's what really gladdens our fathers, the devil, our father's heart. Do you see what Lewis is saying? He's saying pleasure is God's invention. The enemy of your soul tries to distort and warp your enjoyment of pleasure in ways that are not according to God's time, are not in the manner or degree that God has ordained. His desire is to create in you cravings that can never be satisfied. The enemy of our souls is in this pursuit of making less look like more. That's what the enemy of your soul is about. A man looks lustfully at a woman across from the office and he imagines at that moment a tryst with that woman. And he actually fantasizes about the fact that it would be pleasurable, it would be good to do something that is absolutely absurd to throw away 25 years of a good marriage for 15 minutes of pleasure. See, that's what the enemy does. The enemy tries to make less look like more. 
But the reality is the pleasures that you and I are made for are found in God. They're found at the right hand of God. And God's purpose is to satisfy your longings. And all the pleasures of sin for a season are just cravings that can never be satisfied. The problem is not that we have desires. We're made that way because we're made for God. The problem is that we desire sin rather than God. The problem is that we've been hoodwinked to believe the greatest lie ever told, that the pleasures and delights of this world are more enjoyable and more satisfying than God and all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Psalm 34 expresses that so well. It says, Taste and see, verse 8, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the soul who takes refuge in Him. Think about the word picture here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste the Lord. Savor the Lord. Taste His goodness. Taste His grace. Taste His mercy. Taste His kindness. Taste His love. Taste His forgiveness. Taste the endless delights of His complexity and glory. Taste His attributes all held in perfect balance and symmetry and perfection. Taste Him. Chew on Him. Digest Him. And you'll, you'll find that He is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist says, One thing I ask of the Lord, and that's what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Notice what the psalmist makes his focal point. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He doesn't say the sovereignty of the Lord, the might of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the omniscience of the Lord, the omnipresence of the Lord, the omnipotence of the Lord but the beauty of the Lord. Now, I know we could look at all those things and say they are all just aspects and facets of His beauty. But the focal point of this psalm is to taste the beauty of the Lord. To see that beauty. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There's a beauty, a glorious beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you took a course on aesthetics, you'd find that Beauty is something that's very difficult to define. But in reality, God alone is the, only beautiful, is the only one that is beautiful in an absolute and unqualified sense. In God, there's exquisite harmony, perfect balance, perfect proportion, stunning brilliance, marvelous subtlety, solid integrity, if we thought of God as a painting, it would be a painting without one brush stroke out of place or one brush stroke too many. If we thought of God as, a, as music, it would be music without one discordant note. If we thought of God as a sculpture, it would be a sculpture where there is no element too thin or too light, but everything is completely res resolved and, and balanced. In God, there's, there's complete resolution. There's there's Absolute integrity. There's unexcelled beauty. And, and that's the passion of David in Psalm 27. In the midst of all of the difficulties that David is facing, enemies and foes attacking me, armies besieges me, war breaks out against me. One request of God, and that one request is, Oh Lord, put me in your sanctuary. Let me gaze upon your beauty. To gaze upon 
God, to meditate on God, to ravish himself with the beauty of God, to see God in all of his uncreated beauty and indescribable splendor and marvelous glory is what David desired and delighted in. Oh, Lord, let me see your beauty. Let me behold you in the sanctuary. Notice verse 8. That psalm, he says, My heart says if you seek your, your face, O Lord, your face I will seek. What God wants for you and me is to be people that seek His face. He is honored. He is glorified. He is exalted when we seek His face. And He calls us to seek His face. And the results of seeking His face are staggering and amazing. I've meditated recently on the passage in Psalm 25. God discloses Himself to those who seek Him. It says, The Lord makes His covenant known. He confides in those who fear Him and He makes His covenant known to them. What an amazing thing that as I seek God, God is involved in self-disclosure and He opens His secrets to me and enables me to see and understand things that I could never see or understand otherwise. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that in beholding God, in gazing upon God, in contemplating God, in meditating on His wonders, in getting God before our eyes, we become like Him. As we behold Him, we are transformed from glory to glory. All this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding Him, Delighting yourself in God has a transforming quality. It makes us like Him. We become like what we worship. We become like what we delight in. We become like what we, what we glorify and magnify. Delighting in Him, beholding Him, admiring His attributes and His character, we become like Him because to see Him is to delight in Him. To know Him is to love Him. To seek Him is to find Him. And one of the problems that we have as people who live in this fallen world is that there are many, many counterfeits for the solid and lasting joys and delights of knowing God. And these counterfeits promise fulfillment that they cannot satisfy. And you know, I think so often it's not just a matter of someone trying something and concluding that it cannot satisfy and then turning from the counterfeit to the, to the genuine. The experience of the counterfeit dulls and deadens our souls. So you can't dabble in the counterfeits without deadening your experience of the genuine. So the experience of sexual promiscuity, pornography, being an object or a consumer of lust, cocaine, illicit affairs, obsession with beauty and image and physical allure, 
All these things are not only pursuits of pleasure that can never satisfy, but they additionally dull and deaden the soul to what is real and lasting and truly enjoyable. Some of you have had that experience this morning in wanting to worship God. There are praises being sung by God's people, and you've wanted to enter into that with fullness of joy and delight, but your experience of life in the mud in the past week has left you so dull and so deadened that you've been unable to enter into the joys and delights of the worship of God. And that's a tragedy of false pursuit. That's a tragedy I see in the life of young people and children. As I've spoken of these things to the people that I serve, I've mentioned to the kids, you know, sometimes I... I go exploring and I get on their MyFace or their Facebook account and I see the things that they're pursuing and I think, oh my. There's no joy there. There's no satisfaction there. There's no delight there. You're throwing your energy, your creativity into a rat hole. And not only is it a pursuit of futility because you will find no happiness there. It will dull and deaden your soul to the only things that can make you happy. And make the satisfying joys and delights of God seem more distant and less compelling. There's hope for us. There's always hope for us. Because God is full of grace and mercy. I think of passages like Ezekiel 36, that wonderful preaching of the gospel there in the middle of that prophecy. And Ezekiel says, I will cleanse you from all of your impurity and all of your idols. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need, isn't it? We need cleansing from all of our impurity and all of our idols. We need cleansing from all that we've tasted and, and experienced and pursued and, and sought after that dulls and deadens our souls. God says, I will cleanse you from all of your impurity and all of your idols. That gives me hope. He says, I, I will take out your heart of stone. I'll break up that heart of stone. I'll make that heart into a heart of flesh, a heart that is malleable and, and, and soft and supple in my hand. And I'll put my spirit in you, my spirit in you that will cause you to delight in me and cause you to walk in my ways and remember my commandments and do them. It's a marvelous, marvelous expression of grace. Christ can empower us to find joy in Him. And even if you have to say amen to what I said a moment ago about the fact that, that the pursuit of the counterfeit dulls your soul, you're not stuck there. Because we have a God who's full of grace and full of mercy and full of power and full of redemption. And He's able to renew and change us and transform us and give us true delight and joy in Him. We're not stuck. And Christ will, will, will empower you to pursue Him. And I'm persuaded that the greatest, one of the greatest battles in the weapon against sin is delighting in God and pursuing God. Is the more you see Him as beautiful, the less attractive sin seems. The more you find yourself ravished in the wonder of His being and full of delight and gratitude to Him, the less inclined you're going to be to go in those pathways that are dark and wrong and wicked. 
Let me ask you this morning. Do you want to glorify God in all that you do? We sang that today. Do you really mean it? Do you want to do that? Do you want to glorify God? Do you want your life to glorify God? Do you see God as worthy and, and, and deserving of the adoration and awe and reverence of His creatures? Then begin by enjoying Him. God is, an in, is, an in, is inexhaustible. God is a reservoir that will never run dry. He is the fountain of life. There are endless pleasures at His right hand. You will never seek God and one day get to the end of that pursuit and say, like Alexander, there are no more worlds left to conquer. There will always be new dimensions of the wonder and glory of God. And the more you grow in the knowledge of God and love for God and delight in God, every single door opens up a new door to even deeper dimensions of wonder and majesty and glory and awe and the the pleasures and delights of knowing God are inexhaustible. You will never get to the end of the pursuit. Make Him your pursuit. Seek Him through His Word. Meditate. Meditate. Chew on the Word of God. Bring, bring God before your eyes each day. Delight yourself in God. Bring His attributes before your eyes. Read the Scriptures. Ask yourself, what of my Savior's beauty do I see here? What of the joys and delights of that everlasting world do I see here? What pleasures are there for me to find in contemplation of God in this passage, in this circumstance? Pursue Him. Develop an eye for His beauty in the Scripture. We develop an eye for beauty. I've had the joy sometimes of going to an art museum with someone that understands art. And it's amazing because if you're in an art museum with someone that understands art, they can show you things in that painting that you would never see otherwise. And it will deepen your experience of joy and interest in the painting. The same thing's true with poets. I've got a son who loves poetry. He can show me things in poems that I've known my entire life that just are mesmerizing and thrilling. He's developed an eye for the art of poetry. People have developed an eye for various graphics arts. You can develop an eye for the glory of God that is displayed on the pages of Scripture. So that everywhere you're reading, you're seeing the wonder of His beauty. You're seeing the glory of His being. You're seeing this One who fills your heart with joy, who mesmerizes and fascinates and thrills and enthralls and delights and intrigues and fixates. And you're thrilled by Him. Train your eye to see the goodness of God in the ordinary events of life. Train your eye to see the goodness of God in waking up after a good night's sleep and being able to sit up and take nourishment and having food and shelter and loved ones around you. Train your eye to see the glory of God in all those things that we take so much for granted. 
Teach yourself to praise God and to delight in Him in all those things that He has made so wonderful. Do you want to glorify God? Turn away from all that would dull your soul and deaden your senses. We can overcome our enjoyment of sin by increasing and feeding our enjoyment of God. We sing that, don't we? There's a hymn you're probably familiar with. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And one of the ways that you teach your, you turn from sin is by turning to Him, by delighting in Him, by loving Him, by being thrilled and enthralled with all that He is in Christ. When we taste and see that the Lord is good, we say with the psalmist, blessed is the soul who trusts in Him. We can minimize our delight in the inordinate desires of the flesh by increasing our enjoyment of the Savior. Now, I don't know most of you. And there may be some here this morning for whom these things sound very strange. And I want to assure you this morning that as surely as you are a human being that loves pleasure, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy the craving of your soul. There is nothing other than God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who can satisfy the craving of your soul. How tragic at the end of an unfulfilled, unfulfillable pursuit of pleasure to find that not only have I been involved in futility in pursuing pleasure where it could not be found, but my pursuit has been an affront to the infinite value and worthiness of God. And not only have I pursued pleasure and not found it, but I have earned for myself everlasting condemnation because I've sought it in something other than the one who alone is worthy. Isaiah 55 says, Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Then later in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man his thoughts and let them turn unto the Lord and He will have mercy on them and to our God, for He will pardon. I want to tell you this morning, if you're here as someone who does not know Jesus Christ and for whom the notion of finding joy and delight in God through Jesus Christ seems utterly absurd and unreasonable. I want to tell you 
that if you seek Him, you'll find Him. And He not only says that we must seek Him and find Him, but if we don't seek Him and we don't find Him, we will find everlasting destruction. Not only destruction in this world, because we'll be in a pursuit of pleasure that can never be satisfied, but ultimately the everlasting destruction of never being fulfilled as a creature who is made for God, but instead experiencing the unutterable agony of everlasting perdition. What mercy that God says to us, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man his thoughts. And let them turn unto the Lord. And He will have mercy upon them. And to our God, for He will freely pardon. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how grateful we are that You have revealed Yourself to us in this creation that You have made, in this book that You have inspired, and most of all, in Your Son, the very Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. How grateful we are this morning that You remind us in Your Word that there are eternal pleasures to be found in pursuit of You. And this morning we say to You, Lord, we want to be people who pursue You. We want to know You. We want to love You. We want to delight in You. We want to be thrilled and enthralled and mesmerized and fascinated and overcome with the glory and wonder of Your being. Oh, God, help us to turn away from all the counterfeits and all the fraudulent offers of joy and to find joy that is found in knowing You. We pray for Christ's glory. Amen.